So Shadow spends the entire book kind of in an almost suicidal depression and state of shock. So like he, a lot of stuff just rolls off him in a kind of trope defying way. Yeah, to so the point like, where they actually even like the other characters like comment on it, just like you're kind of like cool with all you're this, just going like, with this. Kind of, and Shadow's just like, like yeah. yeah, sure, <laughs> well, yeah, whatever. This might as well happen today. Yeah, <laughs> like fuck it, just. Yeah, you can be you can be uh, Odin, whatever, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> sir. Okay, you're a god. Yeah. That's fine. Whereas, whereas Richard is the exact opposite, where he feels the need to point out every little thing that's different than what he's used to. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome back to Reginald's podcast. Now, you guys are not going to believe this, but for the third third episode running. That motherfucker has failed to turn up. Like, he, he's left me a quick message saying, hey, I'm off to Southern America to set up a few puppet governments. I'm going to be their king now. And that's the last I heard of him. So, once again, I have had to scramble at the last minute to bring in a special guest to cover for that dickhead. Uh, thankfully, my good friend Jamie, a.k.a. Rantasmo, former Channel Awesome uh, associate of mine, although we don't really talk about that particular part of it anymore. Host of Needs More Gay on YouTube. So you discuss uh, LGBTQ representation in modern media on there? Yeah. Um, I uh, don't, my output's not quite as what it used to be, but I'm still, I'm still hanging in there. I'm still doing, um, also, also playing uh, uh, D&D with uh, Little Dicey crew oh, yes. um, every week as well. Who I guess starred with at one point. It was, yes, I, yes. Not going to say like the best episode you've ever done, but definitely in like top 10. <laughs> definitely up there for sure. Yes, but anyway, yes, my good friend Rantasmo Jamie was was very kindly able to fill in at the last minute for Reginald. And we are here to discuss Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman, which uh, is an interesting book because it's sort of a novelization. But I, I say yeah. sort of because the impre- it, it seems to have been written basically at the same time as the TV show that it's based on. But in a way that makes me think it's not so much based on the TV show as it is more a more accurate version of the screenplay that yeah. he originally wrote. For what I so for, I I may be wrong about this. I want to say Neil Gaiman was not very happy with how the TV show came out, and I understand that because it looks like it had a budget <laughs> of about thirty-seven pence. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty low budget. There's some. I mean, the actors are good actors. It just kind of, but you can definitely tell they like. There's like. The dialogue doesn't read quite the same way in the TV show as it does in the book, I find. Yes, there's, um, yes, there's a lot of stuff that was out of Neil Gaiman's hands, because I think this, was one of the, must, this must be one of the earlier TV shows he worked on, because it's like from 1996 or something. It's a mm-hmm. classic shot on shittio sort of format. It's uh, you know, uh, 16 by 9, no, not, not 16 by 9, sorry, it's 4 by 3 square format. It's got you know, video quality resolution. Yeah. Uh, and like, the intro kind of reminds me of uh, like, uh, Goosebumps. <laughs> it's like it's very yeah. so very 90s low budget british tv sure i could definitely see um i mean and and that was i mean speaking for like american uh adaptations of stuff like, like the, the the animorphs tv show to me seems like a, a fair kind of like comparison i know that um in this case the tv show the tv show came first mm. uh but it really does seem to i think go a lot better as a book <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah it's yeah it, it's it's i mean neil gaiman refers to it as the author's preferred text so mm-hmm. the way i'm seeing it is like it's it's his yeah this is what he originally wanted this show to be like and it wasn't fully realized by the tv show although i will admit to my audience now like don't get too excited for this being the first reverse lost in adaptation you guys have been asking for for ages because I'm afraid I didn't have time to watch more than, like, two and a half episodes of the, I think, six-episode series. 
Uh, I don't remember how long, how many episodes the show is, to be honest, but yeah. I, alas, have not seen the majority of the TV show, so I can't, we, we won't be able to compare it, like, scene for scene mm-hmm. to the TV show. But like I said, I, I don't see it necessarily as an adaptation, as, like, a companion piece, or... Long and short of it is, it does look like Neil Gaiman got frustrated with how the TV show turned out and wrote this as, like, a way to vent his feelings. And it, it from what I can see, the book did better than the TV show anyway, because it was better mm-hmm. advertised and was better received and... Yeah, in general, yeah. like everything, like from what I've seen of the first like two and a half episodes, everything in the book is just slightly more visually impre- or you know impressive across the board. Yeah, like it, it, you can see how this script was slowly pared down and reduced. Like lanterns become light bulbs, and like mm-hmm. and miles of tunnels become meters of tunnels, and you know people's right. people's like huge arsenal of weapons become like three plastic knives and stuff like that. <laughs> it reminds me of Sharp a little bit because they just. They, you can see how they didn't have the capacity. You can see how that'd be quite frustrating for someone like Neil Gaiman, who thinks so big sure. in his visual descriptions of stuff. But Yeah. You also just don't get... I mean, Neil Gaiman is a very good writer, and you also mm-hmm. just don't get his like narration um, in the TV show, which you know I think in the book really helps just kind of gel- give you a better just sense of like, who the characters are, and just kind of... It just re- it just, it's, it's a much better experience overall. It is, yeah. I would... If, if anyone would ever ask me for recommendations so I'd say oh definitely the book don't even necessarily need to bother with the TV show unless you love the book and really want to see mm-hmm. a visual which, realization of, of it so which was kind of me I actually read the book first before I ever saw the TV show and then I was like let's see this TV show and I was like oh that's that's yeah. why I haven't heard of this <laughs> Yeah, it's like not to shit on it too much. Like, I think yeah, a lot it's of people not like, did their it's, best. I'm like, making it sound worse than it is, but like compared to the book, it's just the book is so much better. Yeah, it's yeah. So I think that's more of a, a description of Neil Gaiman's talents as it is like a necessarily a huge critique of the TV show. But then sure, again, I, I keep saying that said, I mean the TV show is not good. It's <laughs> sure, just sure, sure. not terrible. So the vague synopsis is uh, Richard. Oh shit, what's his name? Surname Monroe. Richard Mayhew. Mayhew. Richard Mayhew, who is a is he Scottish? Or... He's, yeah, I think he, so. He's originally from Scotland, and then he has he's moved to London. He's been in London for like three years, I want to say something like that. that. Yeah, he's because yes, yeah, because he yeah. sort of because he, he met his girlfriend quite quickly, and then he said like eighteen months later she told him to propose and stuff. But yeah, uh, he's, so he's been in been in London for some time. Yes, he's been in London for some time. He's not like the happiest of people, but he doesn't. He's like that life where he's not fully aware of how unhappy he is because he's just kind of stuck in a rut. Yeah, he's he's with this girl Jessica, who's like nice yeah. not really nice well, actually she's like no, she's, she's, she has those little things where she's like good on paper but like yeah she has kind of these a, little, like she's very controlling yeah, very, very sort domineering of like, yeah. she doesn't really have a lot of empathy for anyone but herself really mm-hmm. deep down like she likes she likes richard but only in as far as like in what she wants him to like this idea that she's created about him like because he's he mentioned it goes there goes way more into this in the book i don't think it's even mentioned in the tv show but they met when richard was making like the one trip to an art exhibit he's ever made in his life mm-hmm. and she jessica like took a liking to him and sort of he was never able to convince her that he didn't really do art museums on the regular so she was always taking him there so yeah it was very clear in the book that like she created like this idealized mental image of him and was just forcing him to go along with it exactly but he i mean i i he he found her stunningly beautiful and didn't have a lot of self-worth so i can see why he mm-hmm. convinced himself that he was in love with her and put up with all this crap but yeah like so one day this woman literally fall appears out of nowhere she falls out of an invisible door in a wall 
and collapses in a pile of blood in front of him. Now, his girlfriend, literally, Jessica, steps over her and tries to walk away, thinking she's just some vagabond, some street vagrant. Whereas, you know, Richard, having a soul, <laughs> stops mm-hmm. to help her. And this sets off a chain of events that leads to... turns out she's from a parallel it's, but sort of connected universe yeah the there's, describe basically there's, there's this sort of underground basically what we find out is that um there is sort of an entire other world kind of that takes place in the london underground in the yeah, uh, london subway system it's sort of physically in our world but the people there are not exactly a part of our reality because once you've been there for too long or once you've involved yourself in this world even by meeting someone there you sort of cease to exist while still existing within the real world. So anyone in, like, Upper London, as they call it, or London Above, sorry, they won't really notice you in a sort of somebody else's problem field sort of way, like Douglas Adams sort of way described it, in that, like, if you directly interact with them, they'll sort of, like, notice you then and be like, oh, yeah, don't I know? Like, even your own mother will say, like, oh, yeah, you're that um, Richie guy, right? And then Mm -hmm. as soon as you step out of their peripheral, they forget about you. So you've sort of, you become like a living ghost. uh, So you have to go and live basically in London below, which is, again, you know, it's it's in the, this isn't some, like, beautiful high fantasy place. This is urban fantasy. It's also dingy and smelly as fuck. It's, Mm -hmm. you're living in the sewers amongst people who make their living living in the sewers. There's kind of a commentary throughout the whole book of of like you know um the book's kind of a commentary on just how the homeless population is treated Mm. to some extent uh they're kind of invisible they're kind of you know you just don't really notice them yeah the the people Um, yes the upper class in london and or and i mean i live in la so i know how this works is that mm. people just choose to not see you as uh, not see the homeless as a person and they're and there's just you know expel them from their mind zone as much as possible Mm -hmm. so it's yeah it is like a imagine a magical fantasy version of that so yeah but richard then gets wrapped up in a very classic fish out of water scenario with uh this young lady who's called door strangely so she's the last living survivor of a noble house of this this below london people who's been wiped out uh by assassins she's trying to figure out what happened to her family she's enlisted the help of a he calls himself the marquis uh, mm-hmm. And he's probably the significantly most interesting character, by a, by a wide margin, the most interesting character in the book. Um, mm-hmm. He's played by, like, a sort of steampunk black man in the TV show, where he's wearing, like, a leather coat. He's got uh, almost like uh, Game of Thrones-style white wig on and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And he's very suave. He's got, like, a very posh... He's clearly putting it on, but he's got, like, an upper-class sort of London accent. So it's like, ah, oh, yes, my dear, how can I help you today? Yeah, which I believe... So he's actually the the... The Marquis de Carabas, which is Carabas. a reference to uh, Puss in Boots, the old fairy oh, tale. I believe that. I believe, yeah, I believe that's uh, Puss in Boots in the, in the fairy tale. Like that's what he calls himself. Like I'm the Marquis de Carabas. Gotcha. So that's kind of and and they actually in the audiobook version that we listen to, there's a, a, a like a side story at the end where he kind of gets into a little bit about his origin story and how he kind mm-hmm. of made that name for himself. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's very knowledgeable, very kind of uh, puts on airs, very Streets, kind of... Yeah. Uh, yes, he's sort of fake posh, but extremely street smart. So he's kind yeah. of the unofficial leader of this team. He's he's sort of a, a favor broker, so Dawes traded like a big favor to him to help solve this mystery of who murdered her family. Uh, and so uh, they're also joined by uh, a lady called The Hunter. Hunter, the yeah. Yeah. Who is, you know, the most skilled fighter slash bodyguard in all the land. It's very sort of... She's like the the, the token high fantasy character mm-hmm. who's popped along for the ride. So uh, it's it's they kind of go on like an urban fantasy quest where they've got to go find an angel to get... Uh, and then once they meet the angel, he tells them to go get a key. Uh, there's two villainous characters called Mr. Vandermar. 
Mr. Croup uh, and Mr. Vandemar. Yes, Mr. Croup and Mr. Vandemar, who also, like, Mr. Croup is sort of very well-spoken. Mr. Vandemar is the giant muscle thug. Uh, it reminded me of a pair of Terry Pratchett, like, Discworld characters, actually, because it's like Mr. Nail and Mr. Some uh, big uh, it's it's hmm. a whole thing like Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett share a lot of ideas with each other because they were yeah. best friends. So a lot of like similar tropes appear in both their books. Yeah, there's a lot of like fairy tale kind of motifs in this one. Like like so, Krupp and Vandermeer are kind of referred to as like a fox and a wolf. Yes, um, and they so, kind yes, of like yeah. act like you know you you can kind of imagine them as like you know anth- anthropomorphic cartoon versions of like you know yeah. of, like a of like a fairy tale fox and wolf villain a little yeah, bit. Yeah, but they're wearing sort of like. Not like 19th century, but like, say, very early 20th century suits, because mm-hmm. uh, they are apparently immortal. They, they sort of casually reel off, like, historical events they've been responsible for, like the sacking of Troy or mm-hmm. the assassinations of various monarchs over the, the millennia. So mm-hmm. these, are, these are immortal beings of pure malevolence who have been hired to... What they've been hired to to do seems to change throughout the story because they're having their strings pulled by a, a hidden thir- you know, third party. Uh, but they are both trying to impede Dor, but also help her in certain situations. But uh, di- my main issue with this book is I really found myself disliking Richard, the main character, mm. the POV character, because a lot of it re- relies very heavily on him being overwhelmed and saying something objectively stupid about this new magical world and someone who's part of this world being sarcastic towards him, usually the Marquis. So he'll, like, he'll insist, wait, there's no, there's no tunnel from the underground to the London Museum. And this is like the seventh time he said, wait, this thing that I'm used to isn't the t- true down here. And someone yeah. said, oh, well, we better not get off the train then or we'll fall into blankness. <laughs> so this sort of goes, like, I can, you can see how... Neil Gaiman's writing is somewhat restricted by the fact that this was originally written to be a TV show mm-hmm. and had input from a lot of other people because there's, I think there's certain tropes like the fish out of water trope that just goes on longer than I think Neil Gaiman would have written had yeah. this been entirely his own story originally. There's definitely, um, if, if, if you're familiar with um, American Gods, it's, it's, this book's kind of similar in that you, you, you kind of have a POV character that's kind of traveling through this kind of otherworldly kind of society yeah. kind of viewing it but where this but where american gods um and like in the book shadow is just very kind of like okay yep Ex- yes exactly happening. i was just kind of rolls with everything yeah shadow rolls with the punches like to almost uh sociopathic level because he the man is lo- shadow just lost his wife like in a mm-hmm. horrible car accident so shadow spends the entire book kind of in an almost suicidal depression and state of shock so like he a lot of stuff just rolls off him in a kind of trope defying way yeah to so the point like, where they uh, actually even like the other characters like comment on it just like you're kind of like cool with all you're this just going like, with this, this. Kind and of, shadow's just like, like yeah yeah sure <laughs> well yeah whatever this might as well happen today yeah <laughs> like fuck it just yeah you can be you can be uh odin whatever mm-hmm. um, <laughs> sir okay you're god yeah. that's fine whereas whereas richard is the exact opposite where he feels the need to point out every little thing that's different than what he's used to yeah and i think for that joke got a little rubbed a little raw for me and there's also things like he's unnecessarily stupid in parts where like towards the end a very 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 obvious vampire comes up to him and it's just like hello for like we (laughs) i could help you with something in exchange for something in return which i won't tell you what it is but you'll just have to do it later it's like Mm -hmm. it's like the devil from rick and morty (laughs) like and richard's like sure you can definitely come along and like everyone else in the party is like richard this is a vampire she's going to kill you (laughs) and he's like you're just jealous (laughs) so 
I mean, I'm, I've read stories where the POV character is definitely not the most interesting person in the room, mm-hmm. but I struggle when he's also kind of a dink. Sure. <laughs> so I can I understand get, that, for yeah. sure. Which is not something that I usually, like, notice in Neil Gaiman's book. So, again, like, I know he was, like, the lead writer originally, but I know also know that, like, screenplays, when you're writing them for TV or movies, are never a solo thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless you're like an author of like extreme power, there's always going to be thing, you know, notes and input that you have to take into account from producers and directors and stuff. Yeah. Which I don't think Neil Gaiman would have had that sort of clout back then. So you can kind of see the elements that he's felt he has to stay true to to tie in with the original script and the TV show that drag the book down a little bit. And like, mm-hmm. you can also sort of pick up on the pacing and sort of structural things that say this was not originally a novel, mm-hmm. uh, which. That's not necessarily a negative. It's just something I picked up on. Yeah, he, it's not that he doesn't have a, like some character arc because he does towards the, you know he does eventually start coming into his own by the end. And it's like mm-hmm. you get a sort of hobbits returning home sort of thing when he goes back to the real world and he's sort of had this character arc where he's no longer a passive person anymore. So he starts standing up for himself, and it's you know, mm-hmm. it was like Bastion coming back from Fantasia and beating up his bullies. Oh yeah, he did it with a dragon in the in the movie, which is uh, <laughs> sure. always funny. Yeah, um, so. It's, yeah, so it's not like he's completely irredeemable. It's simply that I, f- I found myself just thinking, like, you don't have to be this willingly stupid, Richard. Yeah, and I think he's kind of a vehicle, a vehicle just kind of help us get a sense of what this world is, which mm-hmm. we actually only really get, like, a small... I feel like we only really get a small idea of what... Like, there is some sort of society in the London below, but we yeah. only... Like, there's, like, baronies. It's very kind of, like... Yes, there's, there's, there's an... Yes, that you've got the impression you're only really scraping the surface, and, like, if this had been a more successful TV show, you might have seen more sequels to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neil Gaiman did say that, like... Because uh, I also listened to the audiobook version, uh, which Neil Gaiman narrated himself. He's not the best narrator, but he's passable. It's not a problem, yeah, you know. Yeah. Stick it on, one, you know, 1.15 speed, uh, sure. and you'll, you'll be fine. But he did mention at the end in the author's notes that he, like... Uh, was inspired by the Dirt Mags audio drama that they recently did, adaptation of it, that mm. he might actually come back and write some more for this universe, which mm. is quite exciting. But I did notice, incidentally, just segueing slightly, that this, because uh, Dirt Mags was also did the audio drama for The Sandman, and mm. it's a lot of the same cast. Like, this seems to have been like a dry run for The Sandman, because it had James McElroy as, and stuff mm. like that playing the lead character and stuff like that. Uh, did I say that? James Mac- uh Professor X. Am I saying his name? Yeah, yeah. James okay, cool. I, th- yeah, I was having right. a brain fart there. It's, yeah, so it's a lot of the <laughs> okay. same producers and actors in that. So if you mm. did like the audiobook, uh, you know, the audio drama that Audible did for The Sandman, you might that might be a good... It's. I mean, it's relatively a lot shorter than the audiobook. I think it's only about six hours because they're doing it as an audio drama and you had to... Uh, Bridget. So, so yeah, like, I, I didn't get around to listening to the audio drama, but that might be a good like ingress into this universe if you're a first-time listener. There, there's still a lot of positives. A lot, like I would not say that I didn't enjoy this book at all. It's a very positive experience because, like, you can't beat Neil Gaiman. At the end of the mm-hmm. day, like, there was a lot of uh, you know a lot of just sort of Gaimanisms. Like, he's really good at being scary when he wants to, stuff like that. And we'll we'll come back to that. But like, I, I've gotten a bit ahead of myself because I usually ask my guests, like, so 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 why did you pick this book for this episode? What does this book mean to you? You, my friend this is the first uh, neil gaiman book i ever read i, I think i read it I, I took it my my like a long time ago my family and i were going on vacation one day and i just got this book and i, I brought it along and um yeah it was kind of like my first kind of i think i'm pretty sure it was like one of my first like first like urban fantasy books i'd mm-hmm. i'd read and i just i kind of fell in love with just the way that gaiman writes and uh he's very good at writing dialogue i find um which is kind of something where i, where I like also like to focus on like 
where characters kind of make these kind he of... He does dry British sarcasm so well. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I had not seen, seen the TV show at the time, but I, I felt like I had a very good kind of image of what was happening while I was reading this. And yeah. it was just... Um, yeah, it, it was just one... I, I, I don't know if it's my... I don't read nearly as much as I used to, um, but I this book has always kind of stuck with me as as a really very memorable experience. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So, I mean, would you rank it as like amongst your favorite books or just like a good... Yeah, I would point? say so, definitely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my favorite books are Neil Gaiman's ones because, like, you know, Good Omens mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Although that was half Terry Pratchett and stuff, but yeah, sure, sure. He's, yeah, he's great. <laughs> I do because he's like my since we lost the late great Terry Pratchett, Neil Gaiman's sort of become my uh, rebound author because mm-hmm. they do have a lot in common in their writing styles and they you know were such close friends and stuff. So he's like my nicotine patch of Terry Pratchett. Uh, sure, but not to say that he's just a shadow of Terry Pratchett. He's very talented in his own right, and he does mm-hmm. have his own unique spin on things. But that was my my first experience with him was just bleed over from from that, and I you know really do enjoy his work a lot. So I was I, I'd actually ne- until you mentioned it though I hadn't actually heard of this one. This mm-hmm. were which is odd because I you know I thought I was quite aware of his body of work. Yeah, I think this was I don't know where I I don't recall where this kind of sits in his like career. Um I feel like it was cuz what what year was it this book? 1996 is when they both the book okay. and the TV show came out. So this is probably I mean I forget when Sandman I mean Sandman was was I forget, I forget when that comic book wrapped up, but this was probably pretty close to the if not the end of like the middle of his like Sandman career. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of forget how long Neil Gaiman's been in the in the game cuz like he doesn't look as okay, so he must be what his late 50s at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, how old is Neil Gaiman actually? Yeah. I don't like the way Google shows Wikipedia these days. It's like <laughs> we're not going to show you the whole thing until uh, you click geez. on a few extra stuff. Okay, it looks like he's 62. 62, yeah, so the man does not look 62, so I keep forgetting that, like, he's been active since, like, the... He's been making co- things since, like, the early 80s at yeah. the latest, so... So this was actually his second novel. It was after Good Omens. <gasps> Wait, Good, o- Good Omens was his first? Good Lord. Apparently, yeah. Good, it looks I like Good Omens was in 1990. Okay. That's, yeah. I mean, I, I've done a whole history of Good Omens when I covered that, because I've covered Good Omens twice on mm. my YouTube channel, so... I so sort of, yeah... His, uh, he described, like, he said, like, yeah, working, like, when Terry Pratchett says, do you want to co-write a book with you, you say yes, because it's like if Da Vinci said, do you want to paint the Sistine Chapel with me, you know? Yeah, of course. So, <laughs> I thought that was an appropriate reaction. I can, I can, I guess I can see, like, how he was new to it, because there's a lot of things, like, he started developing differently. Like, again, like, how he portrays his main character and how he's, he starts defying a lot of tropes that he used in this show, in this book later on. He still got it, because, like, I fucking shit my pants when we got to the the scary bridge as i like, mm-hmm. mentally dubbed it because um it's one of these things that like he never bothers fully explaining but in order to get to uh, what's called the floating market which is like basically a pop-up market that takes place literally anywhere in the world because like geography is a bit optional once you're in london below mm-hmm. you can there's there's portals and mystery doors and magical bridges that one minute you'll be in london next minute you'll be in sheffield or you'll be in like the hms belfast which is a, a, a wrecked, you know, it's a dis- decommissioned uh, navy destroyer that's off the coast somewhere. Uh, so the, this market where people, you know, come to honk their, honk their wares like every other day or so, will literally just pop up anywhere in Britain because they have this magical thing where people don't really see these people. It will often be just in a shop or something, so it will be like an, uh, in a in another shop where they've just dragged in all their stalls. So they're like, I mean, Virgin Records still existing when this book was written. So that's, that's kind of dates it. But like, mm-hmm. I think they, I can't remember which store he mentions in the book where it shows up. Uh, but I don't it's, remember. It's, it's a British, it's a British was shop. It, and like, was it the, Harrods? 
Might have been something like that, yeah. Richard at one point is like, why aren't they just robbing the store? But apparently that's like against the rules. Why are they mm-hmm. like bartering for these weird junk things when there's a literal shelf full of stuff right here? But like, I, I'm given to understand that that store, when they were making the TV show, changed their mind at the last minute and said, no, you can't film here. So they had to scramble at the last minute and say, it's, oh, it's under a power plant. Mm. So that was sort of like restored to the original text in the book. But anyway, in order to get to this market, that particular day, you have to cross this this like dimension bridge, which they don't warn Rich in advance, will occasionally just take people halfway across. Like you cross it and you briefly enter a nightmare world and like one in 10 people just don't exit the other side of the bridge. Yeah. And it's it's terrifying because like you don't like it's one of those situations where he didn't realize how much danger he was in until afterwards but also a literal like teenager was his guide and she doesn't make it across yeah and it's so dark yeah it's pretty like, sad <laughs> like because he really plays this girl up he really pulls a fucking uh game of thrones season one on us where he's playing her up to be a main character because you learn about her tragic backstory and all her hopes and dreams for the future and and, and, and like richard's really bonding with her and he's taking on his like a fatherly role to her and then she's just gone. And yeah. everyone else is just like, yeah, that happens sometimes. Yeah, happens. Oh, well. <laughs> the bread, the darkness took her. It does that. And this, and yeah. Richard is, at least in the book, appropriately horrified. He's like, no, what? No. We have to go back for her. Well, it's Scottish. I was like, no, we have to go back for her. <laughs> Sorry, Scotland. That was terrible. Um, so, it, and I was just like, yeah, what? And he doesn't, like, to his credit, he doesn't drop it for the rest of the book. He keeps bringing her up. Mm-hmm. And, like, one person says sometimes they come back. And I had, like, a spike of hope, but then she doesn't. She doesn't, yeah. like, spoilers, guys. Sorry for the, the, the but, like, she doesn't come back. Mm-hmm. She's just been taken by the darkness. And I'm like, damn, dude, yeah. that was terrifying. Well, I, I think, I think that, moment, that moment kind of, like, solidifies just kind of, like, how, how much danger there is in this other world. Yeah. And so, so it's, it's Knightsbridge is, 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 the, is the, the name of the, the bridge that he crosses. And, yeah. and from what I gather, that, that's, like, a, a, an area, it's either, like, a, a, a neighborhood. And I'm sure you, you, you know the, like, London references a lot better than I don't, do. I mean, don't, to some I, my, my <laughs> sense of geography was always terrible. I didn't spend much time in London. But I, did, okay. I mean, I, I okay. get the big ones, like King's Cross and uh, yeah. uh, Barron's. So there's, there's some I did get, but yes, there's a lot of the humour is London place names, which are usually derived from fairly innocuous things or just tradition, uh, are very literal in mm-hmm. in London below. Uh, so yes, Knightsbridge is like the bridge of the night. Yeah, as in, not as in like a nice on horseback, which is is referenced, but it's like basically just like a bridge of darkness. Yeah, uh, uh, Blackfriars is literally a community of black monks yes. um uh, which, which um, reads especially kind of odd in like the, in like the tv like they don't they kind of like loosely allude to it in the book but it's like very obvious they, in the tv yes. show like oh these are all black actors playing monks it's black it's black friars that's yeah they're wearing black robes it's black people it's, yeah it's, yeah so but there's a lot of stuff like that so who, what was the other one the duke the uh, earl? Earl's, i think uh, earl stop or something or yeah mm-hmm. earl's uh, or, Earl's Court is that what Earl's, it is? Earl's Court that was it so yeah Earl's Court which you know was at some point in the past in London an Earl's Court and then is now just a train station or train line and uh, is now again an actual Earl's Court down there it's a, mm-hmm. it's an Earl who holds court on a train because he his domain is that track so uh, it's it's very clever like I I imagine some of the references were lost on the Americans but like mm-hmm. I don't think it's essential to get it to enjoy the book because like I said my knowledge of london geography is also fairly limited because i'm just an ignorant motherfucker 
in regards to geography anywhere. Uh, <laughs> sure, I get that. I mean, and I, I lived in the northwest of Britain, so London wasn't my haunt. Uh, I I think I want to say in the book there was a a map of basically basically a copy just of the London Underground map, mm-hmm. but it kind of reads like a like you know you're reading like a. J- J.R.R. Tolkien book, and there's this, like, fantasy map, and all these different, like, you kind of wonder, like, oh, I wonder what's in, you know, Raven's Court, or whatever. Yeah. Like, are, there, are there ravens there? It turns, it turns out there are. Yes, there's um, literally yes, a lot of birds. Oh, yes, rats also play a big part, because rats apparently are sapient and have their own society and their part in this world. They play messengers, yeah. or they have their king of there's rats There's a lot of references stuff. to, like, yeah, like, rats and pigeons and ravens, just kind of these sort of, like, the kind of vermin animals yeah. that show up in London. Yeah, so it's it's very dark urban fantasy, and also just I would describe it as very smelly, uh, you know, sticky because mm-hmm. they, you know, again they are living in the sewers. There is a lot of mud and sh- literal shit and vermin, uh, and most of the people there are just very used to it. So mm-hmm. this, yeah, this isn't a world that people fantasize of going to. It's a world where people fantasize escaping from, as Richard does. Like once he's been exposed to door for too long, and he gets infected with this invisibleness. This. Uh, mm-hmm. He spends the rest of the book trying to get back home because he wants to go back to his boring ass life where he's not constantly in danger of being taken by the darkness. Mm-hmm. Which fair, fair. Sure. But also, like you also like. I mean, again, we're, we're, there's going to be total spoilers for this book from definitely this point on, at least. Um, sure, sure. Like at the end, he does go back to his life after they've defeated the secret villain. He goes back up, and then by the end of the book, he's just like, "I'm bored of being an a, working yeah. as an accountant or whatever the equivalent of. He worked in securities, which One- I mean." Which is like financial security, not security guards. So he's, sure. he's just like, yes, I got promoted. Yes, I got a better flat out of it. And yes, I, I got rid of my toxic girlfriend. But I'm bored. I'm going back to the underworld. Yeah. One, <laughs> is, one could argue there's a certain amount of like romanticization of being homeless a little bit in this. Like, yeah. It's like, like, it's like this fantasy world where there's crazy and you, yes and you have pride and you have <laughs> uh yeah you don't give a shit and you don't yearn for stability or sure. yeah so there's definitely that but like he's not it's not a direct yeah. one for one parody of of that but i do exactly. I, di- I didn't think of that until you mentioned it but that's a very good point because mm-hmm. uh, yes it's not you it's kind of use it it's kind of used as more of an allegory for you know yeah like chaos and a sort of like this kind of adventurous kind of yeah being underground kind of idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the villain of the piece turns out to be the angel, which, mm-hmm. uh, so there's an angel who is trapped in, they don't really explain why they are, but they're living in like a, a, a single dimensional cell. It's like you can only reach by going they through a do door. why. Well, yes, uh, they don't, when, they first, <laughs> when they first meet him, they don't explain why. Okay, uh, yes, so that's yeah, part right, of the right, plot right. twist. Uh, which I watched just enough of the show to realize he's played by a very young Peter Capaldi. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> I hadn't seen him with, like, not gray hair before. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was, I can see why they ch- Like, he doesn't have quite the same sort of androgynous, angelic face that you might expect from an angel, but he was a pretty man. I didn't realize that. I'm a, I'd only seen him as Daddy Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, so seeing him as young Peter Capaldi, I was like, okay, okay. Yeah, so... Yeah, uh, so the the angel's name is Islington, which I believe is, yes, is also, is very is also funny, a stop in the in the. It's a ta- it's a so, it's a town within London, okay, it's, and okay. it's it's sort of known for being incredibly boring. It's like there's a joke I think in Hitchhiker's Guide was like this shit doesn't happen in Ing- Islington, you know. <laughs> so it's like it's like like a reti- it's where like the suburb a lot of suburbs are has been gentrified. I believe again, don't trust okay. my 
London geography to the hilt, gotcha. but it's kind of known just for being a kind of boring suburb. So yeah. this, this apparently finding out it was named after a literal angel is really funny. But uh, yeah, so they they tracked they find clues that suggest they have to go to this angel to get the next part of their quest. So then it takes a while to get there. He says, "Go and get me this key." Uh, which they have to pay, like face like three trials with the black monks to do which hilariously Richard gets the hardest trial because the other two didn't realize it was one each and they just automatically did the trial the first two because mm-hmm. one was just beat up a guy so Hunter being this kung fu maiden does that and the next one's a riddle which Dor just gets immediately and then it was mm-hmm. like okay now it's the trial of depression and suicide well who's <laughs> yeah. left well Richard your turn and Richard's like what <laughs> so you're basically subjected to you know, all your worst depressive thoughts in the hopes that it will drive you to suicide. He's basically kind of gaslit into thinking that he's actually just insane. Exactly. Which has been like his like, he's been obviously concerned about. Yes. They said like, Hey man, you're actually just hallucinating this. You're want, you're wandering up and down a train station, mumbling to yourself. All of this fantasy Mm -hmm. stuff isn't true. And then he's seeing all these things saying, you know, jump off onto the platform, but he pulls through because he's given a reminder of the young, uh, her name was like the, the young girl who was taken by the bridge is called like anesthetic or something. Anastasia. Anesthesia is Anesthesia, yes. Yeah. So he, he he finds a reminder of anesthesia and it's just like, if I die, it's all for nothing. So he's like the first person in like 10,000 years to pull through this trial, mm-hmm. uh, which I, maybe it was best than TV show. It felt a little sort of forced. It was, it was over very quickly in mm. uh, the book. I think it was a weaker moment of it because I feel like his was just like, so no one else in 10,000 years was reminded of a reason to live? Uh, I, I think it's kind of meant to be... Because, I mean, this whole time, Richard has been, been this kind of just like every man just kind of like stumbling through. And I think it's kind of that you're kind of meant to... Like, oh, there actually is something kind of special about him. Like, there actually yeah. he actually has this sort of, you know, a- empathetic spirit. Like, he's the first person to actually like care about the homeless people that we see. Oh, um, okay. Like, like the, 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 there is this, this kind of strength of character in him that's kind Damn. of... I'm so bad. Yeah, I'm so bad at missing. Uh, like, I'm such a literal-minded person. I miss a lot of allegories and metaphors, and they have to be mm-hmm. so like that. Now that you explain that, that makes so much <laughs> more sense to me. Okay, cool. Well, and again, there's, there's, there's that sort of folk ness of the story. Like, you know, like a lot of old folk tales. Those like, there's a blind old man on the street, and, these, and, and this mm. person stops. And, yes, because he's the, he showed kindness to the to the exactly. the, home, the, the ve- yeah the beggar. Um, yeah, yeah. So, the, yeah, I guess there's a, a portion of that, but, like, yeah, the fact that he actually had empathy for the people around him, where a lot, uh, and he wasn't really that invested in the quest otherwise. He was mm-hmm. just doing it to help out. Yeah. And th- that actually makes a lot of sense in hindsight. Um, but, yeah, so, like, they, they get this key, and they take it, and then the plot twist is the angel's actually manipulated one, because apparently I mean, he's manipulating the entire event. He was, he's the one who hired the killers, to mm-hmm. to wipe out the family and stuff, and turns out he apparently just fucking wiped out Atlantis. Is mm-hmm. he found like I don't know if it was because they were doing sin or uh, I can't if they mentioned that or it's kind of implied humorous. that like like yeah like he's he, like so uh, so Islington actually they actually use it pronouns for the angels, which I thought was a little interesting. That's <laughs> um. that's the recurring <laughs> yes, it's a thing I've noticed by British authors from like the twentieth century is that without really not it's not intended to be transphobic or sure 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 it was simply that it was used as a gender neutral pronoun through not i guess like general ignorance throughout the like 20th century because one of my favorite science fiction books uses uh it as that Mm. and that 
uh, and I, I really, um, that author, the author I looked it up has shown no other signs of being gender critical in any way mm-hmm. or being transphobic. So, like, I think. Well, it was I think just, in this case, it's it's more just kind of like the angels. Are, the angels are such such kind of like. Yeah, because um, the angels are canonically or you know biblically uh, genderless. They are, mm-hmm. uh, but like uh, my impression, of Neil Gaiman is he absolutely wouldn't. He would have played. He absolutely wouldn't have used it as a pronoun just to be on the safe side of things. Mm-hmm. Knowing Neil Gaiman recently, because he's always been a very staunch trans ally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah. You know. So he. Uh, you know. I was just. I was a bit sort of like oh because uh, yes yeah. again it, the angel is not any gender. It's not. It, or not you know it, it's. Uh, not not he's like genetically non-binary mm-hmm. uh so i don't think he was trying to make any sort of statement there other than he yeah. just he was using it as a general neutral pronoun so like sure, I, sure, sure. I just wanted to make that clear in, in neil Gaiman's defenses i don't think he was intentionally being offensive though i think he was just yeah i don't think so and there are i mean this is a whole other discourse but like there are people who use it pronouns it's it's kind of rare um, Do they? Kind oh, of a... i thought that was generally considered to be extremely insulting like I, I there's a lot of there's a lot of discourse around it there are actually i mean even within with it just within the trans community there's like people will argue or like whether that's like damaging to the trans community that's a whole other conversation that i'm not really yes. qualified to have yes, no, neither but, uh, are really being being <laughs> but yeah uh, i just thought it was, it's kind of interesting um i mean yeah his islington is eventually it is as in the book described as very androgynous um i don't yeah. know if they do the same thing in the tv show well i mean pisa capaldi has beautiful long flowing hair and mm-hmm. is dressed in a very sort of dress-like robe but they and he's clean shaven yeah but it's still peter capaldi he's not sure. a particularly feminine uh, effeminate person, you know, feminine-looking mm-hmm. person. So, uh, but he like they they were using lighting and stuff to really bring out the fact that his eyes are like dark, like two bl- you know dark pools of you know, delightfulness. So, yeah, you know, he's he's got he's got kind of an ethereal look to him, but they can't really recreate the sort of gender ambiguity that they Neil Gaiman plays up in the book. Uh, but like the, the twist that it was the angel all along is almost a trope now. Like I think this pre mm-hmm. like because it was. It was the twist in that terrible Constantine adaptation with Keanu Reeves, where it turned out Gabriel was behind it all. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the twist in Dogma, the Kevin Smith movie. Well, uh, Dogma is kind of, fr- like, from the start, you kind of know it's the angels, I believe. Well, yeah, well, there's two angels, but there's also, like, a former um, angel-turned-demon who turned out to act- to actually be uh, manipulating It's been a long situation. time since I've seen Dogma, but yeah. It's, <laughs> it's not aged great. I liked sure. it a lot at the time, but a lot of Kevin Smith stuff's a bit dated. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so, like... I wouldn't say it's like a super trope, but I've noticed the uh, the angels behind it all has turned up in several stories I've enjoyed, which is really funny to me. They wiped out Atlantis, and they want... Uh, they've been told, like, after a couple of million years or something, they'll be let out and given another chance, but they've decided to speed things up. So they've... Yeah. They, they They're basically looking the- for a way back, back into heaven to pre- yeah. presumably take over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so they 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 attempted that. Um, they're defeated simply by the simple bait and switch, in that door has a magical power to open portals to places. Basically, she can use it, open any door, and the door will lead wherever she wants it to lead. Mm-hmm. So instead of using the actual key, she had a fake maid, and she basically opens a door up into fucking deep space, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is really funny to me. Yeah. So the angel is sucked out through the door, as are the villainous doc- Mister Vandermar, Mister Coop. Uh, Sucked out. I thought it was going to be a black hole or something, but it looks like mm-hmm. she just like it's as far across time and space as I could make it. So, yeah. angels apparently are at least restricted by some amount of geography because he's sure. going to have to fly back across the entire universe. It may have also been some other dimension, for all we know. Like that is true. We don't, they don't really say where time. where it is that she, that she sent them. Yeah. So, but that also drove home that like Richard is very much an observer in his own story because like the person who kind of saved the day was not him in any shape or form it was door mm. who saved the day 
he was he was somewhat of superfluous to his own story to a certain extent, aside from being mm-hmm. the heart of the group. Um, yeah, he, but, he is he does he does play a pivotal role in that he. Um, so this is this is this is recurring. He has this dream dream about this beast. Yes, uh, that he has to fight, um, and it actually is. I feel referred to a little more like in the TV show. There's a lot of like all the moments where there's like this sort of like vague kind of like nightmarish imagery yeah. in the book. And they kind of, kind of just replace with this like montage of yeah. him fighting this beast. Again, lack of, yeah. yeah. I think it might've almost been a lack of budget thing. Cause they clearly like, cause Neil Gaiman paints a lot of pictures about a uh, much more terrifying things, but sure. But there's sure. apparently there was a beast underneath London, which is the best way of describing it is a very aggressive giant wild boar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, he does play a pivotal role in killing it in the end, but like, yep. His role was only person who wasn't very badly wounded who could hold the spear. True. Because, <laughs> I mean, Hunter, Hunter, who was turned out to be a traitor but then redeemed herself by sacrificing her life in battle to save them, mm-hmm. uh, did most of the hard work. He, she, he was, she was just like, I'll stand here. When I say stab it, stab it. You know? Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> be- because of that, he then is now, like, the most... Par- like, technically, he's now the most renowned warrior in all of the underworld and in all of London below, which is very yeah. funny because he's still a rather dithering, like Scottish expat who's just like, uh, <laughs> so that that is you know, even within the canon of the book. Like Hunter's basically last thought was just laughing. It's like, ha, 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 you're the ultimate warrior now, <laughs> which is really funny. But yeah. uh, but like, I kind of like I, I mentioned before, my favorite character was uh, sorry, what's McKee's full surname again or the assumed the, the Marquis de Carabas yeah so the Marquis de Carabas was by far the most interesting character because he's off just kind of doing getting the job done behind the scenes which mm-hmm. I'm given to understand again was uh, played up a lot more in the novel versus the TV show because he literally dies at one point like he you think he's gotten captured by Mr. Cooper Mr. Vandermar but it turns out that was actually the plan along because he you know, magic. He has a resurrection. He has a you know a, a reset button hidden out there he has somewhere. A phylactery, basically. Yeah, literally a, a phylactery out there. But like, so he allows them to torture him to death because he says like, "Oh, you'd be amazed how many people give away more information when they're interrogating you." So and I was like, that is such a baller move. But also like, they chuck his body into the sewer, and there's a quite a long extended sp- sequence that describes his body making its way through the shit and muck towards the uh, you know the estuary of the Thames, and like how the rats see it, and they just like pass on the message to various people, and someone comes and picks up his body, and it's being sold, and they like it's like wow, he really like this guy has got balls of steel because I know mm. he was dead at the time, so he didn't have to witness being faced down in a pile of London shit. Sure. But like the fact that he was willing to go through that to get his goals done, mm-hmm. fucks really hard. Like I was, I was like, damn, I wish there were more stories about this character. And then Neil Gaiman rewarded, you know, he, he rewarded mm-hmm. me for my request by giving us a little short story that was set from his perspective at the yeah. end. Uh, so yeah, I, I kind of almost wish the entire story had been told from his perspective. But again, I know that wasn't the story Neil Gaiman was looking to tell for this. He wanted mm-hmm. a, a classic fish out of water story. Which again, later, as we've discussed now, like later in his career, he gets over because he's like, "Yes, well, I'll do fish out of water, but this fish is also just going to be absolutely immovable, and we're just going to yeah. go with the flow, and we're not going to feel the need to have him point out again and again and again how this is confusing." Right. <laughs> uh, which I think is a good. I, I prefer that in yeah. in those sort of stories. But uh, so, did did you like have a favorite part of the book? Oh gosh. Um... I don't know. It's just kind of really just uh, Gaiman's just kind of narration, honestly. Just kind of his, like, just the the, the little details he kind of gives about each character. Like, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Vandermark has these, like, skull rings that he yeah. plays with and just, like, 
um, just I, I I like I like the you kind of get like a like peek into this kind of world without really fully understanding it. Yes, um, he, just enough he, to kind of like tickle your imagination a little bit. He does. Um, yes. No, that's yeah. a good point. That he very much knows where to draw the line of over-explaining. He mm-hmm. will give you an idea and then let your imagination fill in the rest. Which yeah. Is, it's yeah. a hard line to tread because you can end up under-explaining things very easily. But again, it's Neil Gaiman. He he nailed it. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> and what about favorite character? Do you have one of those? Oh man, Mr. Croup is definitely very fun. He's this he kind is, of very he's, like he's an extremely verbose villain, isn't he? It's exactly. Like, ah. And we are most lawyers are delightfully taunted in the ways of uh, excruciation. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, he's to me, he's almost kind you. of the like dark version of uh, the Marquis de Carabas a little yeah, bit. He's this no, very yeah. sort of like you know gentlemanly kind of character, but uh, twisted to more you know devious ends. Yeah. But yeah, so he's 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 always like if you do like sort of dry British wit, he does bring a lot of joy to every scene he's in, despite the fact that he's a objectively horrible person. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but yeah, so it's yeah, it's always he's always very very verbose. Like he's he's trying to track down. It's like oh yes, I'm on a quest to recover my lost sister. She's become quite overwhelmed of her situation. And so if you do yeah. find her, was like it's like if you guys are brothers, why do you have different last names? Like oh how sharp <laughs> your wit is, my sir, good sir. Yes, you are very, most observant of the yeah. So it's like he he's sort of like he will very politely. Like cut out your liver while you watch. Mm-hmm. So it's it's uh, yeah. He's a very good villain. There's so, like, yeah. there's there's some line he says where like like he says like Dora's days are numbered and and the number in question isn't even in, even in double digits. Yes, it's, it's uh, extremely. So, yeah. yeah, you you have this count- very good this very fun kind of like this uh, di- dynamic with Mr. Vandermar too, where Mr. Vandermar is just very kind of blunt and like to the point and like. Like, yes, yeah, he's, I, he's very I'm literal like, minded. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's the dumb muscle, but not in like the sort of duh way, just in the sort of yeah. man of few words way. So, him, mm-hmm. but uh, and it was just like he also like just kind of step on uh, Mr. Coop's point occasionally. Like, it was like, oh, we would never lie to you. It was like, yeah, we, we lie all the time. We lied, yeah, we we lied earlier when we killed that guy. <laughs> it was like, yes, thank you, Mr. Vandermar. You are absolutely correct. We are, in fact, quite like un- untrustworthy people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, so you yeah, know, it's they're, they're a fun duo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to have to look up... Uh, no, I'm not going to go segue too much. But again, they do remind me very much of uh, a pair of characters who showed up in a Terry Pratchett book, which I believe was called The Truth, which mm. was the invention of newspapers, the parody of newspapers in Discworld. So they were a character, again, that was the the high sh- the, the sort of verbose uh, brains of the outfit versus, and the big muscle guy. Uh, mm. So yes, if you if you really didn't enjoy those characters, if you've not read The Truth, that's, another one, that's a very good Terry Pratchett book I would recommend, like... Uh, and it, I mean, it's kind of quite far into the Discworld narrative, so you would be starting with a lot of things. Uh, but like, there's no—you could probably start there if you had to. I think T- Pratchett was good at explaining the world to you as you go along. But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, so again, like the TV show, there, there's some stuff that I noticed in it that was like was like not necessarily in the book. Like I was skipping forward a little bit, I noticed like that. Uh, Richard saved a suicidal man's life because he was attempting to jump off uh, Tower Bridge. Mm. And he sort of pulls him back, which was very confusing to the man who was trying not to notice him. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so that Neil Gaiman sort of skimmed over that part, which was very interesting. So it's like, I once, like it's too late to bring it up in this podcast, but I might watch the rest of the series just to see um, which, sure. which elements they did actually, he decided not to do. Because it's, it's, it is interesting to see, like, if you see this book as like a realization of what his original dream was, it's kind of a good example of 
the compromises that TV shows have to make through, mm-hmm. in this case, again, I think probably lack of budget. Yeah. Because uh, you do not get the sense that they had a lot of money to do all yeah. this with. I which is, that. yeah, which is why I love this. There's also, and when was the TV show? Like, it was early 90s. So, 90, I mean, mid 90s. So, so I mean, again, yeah. yeah not they nearly didn't have a lot of technology to, like, either. Yeah, special effects we have now, not, not really yeah. as prevalent back then. So yeah, so it's like it is a good. It's it's not the reverse adaptation that people keep asking me for, but it is a very good look at like the the TV show making process, or at least the dated one, in as far as you do have to just give up on certain ideas that you would have liked to have had, mm-hmm. uh, just because they're just not feasible. Sure. Uh, but yeah, um, did you like? I noticed when I was listening to the audiobook that like they defeated Islington. Uh, Peter Cavaldi was sucked off into deep space and I, I glanced down and noticed there was still like four hours of mm-hmm. book left and while some of that turned out to be the uh, extra content short story yeah. a lot of it was just that it, he spends a lot of time he, you know, he's getting, he gets his wish granted and gets to go back to his former life mm-hmm. and with this newfound confidence and luck he, he bullies his way into a better life or at least you know, stands up for himself into a better life Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then at the last minute it's just like Fuck it! I want to go back and live a life of adventure. I'm going back to the underworld. Um, sure. Like, so he does that, but like, they, it's definitely a long, like, it's almost Lord of the Rings style ending where it's like this. It's been like three chapters of him just like, yeah, doing his normal shit. A lot of falling action, definitely. Yeah. So that was that was an interesting choice, but again, I think that was the sort of the hand of the TV show wrapped mm-hmm. up in it. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So you got anything anything else you want to round off on? Um... I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, as far as I mean, if if we consider this an adaptation, it is definitely I think one of the few examples where, um, like, I, I, this isn't exactly a novelization. I wouldn't call it yeah, exactly. exactly but yeah, it, <laughs> I, I I thought when you first mentioned it to me that it was going to be a classic novelization, but like the more I look into how it was written, when it was written, and what it was based on, mm-hmm. I don't. I, yeah, if it is a novelization, it's a novelization of the script, not the TV show. Yeah, yeah, definitely. so. Again, it's yeah. So I, I think like you don't, you know, it's not going to be weird if you uh, just read the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God, novelizations are weird though. Like I, I have to admit, <laughs> I've always had a mild amount of casual contempt for them because I've never, I... <laughs> I've never found them very good. So I've, I have not seen the movie, but I have read the novelization of Me, Myself, and Irene. Of all things. Good lord, they made a novelization? <laughs> That's yep. what, what, the Jim Carrey movie where he has yep. disassociated de- like identity disorder? My brother got a copy of, like, my brother saw it in a, like, my, I, was on, I was on vacation with my family one day, and my brother got it for me, because it was like, hey, you like books. <laughs> and I think he'd seen, he'd seen the movie and thought it was that would be funny, but... It was just like, uh, I read it. <laughs> That's amazing. I may have to read that because if there's any, like, I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of things I genuinely would say, wait, wait there's a novelization of that. But like, when you mm-hmm. started that sentence, there was no way I would have guessed that would be the novelization <laughs> you were about to say. Because that is mm-hmm. just, the whole premise of that movie is it's Jim Carrey being Jim Carrey. Yep. They literally had him playing two characters because he had dissociated personalities. Um uh, <laughs> the like, book literally opens with with Jim Carrey's character like pooping on someone's lawn, which I guess he, he does in the movie. He poops in someone's car. No, or, or, okay, it has poops, been a few he years. He poops somewhere he's not it. supposed to yeah. poop. Uh, yeah, and that's how it opens. <laughs> okay, it's like it's like a cold open. Like imagine this wacky yeah. scenario. Like <laughs> how? Okay, how have you seen the film now? 
I don't have not. <laughs> okay, right. How do they describe the man, his wife? Okay, sorry guys. Like we are segueing completely away. From I don't this remember thing now, a lot about to... the book to be honest. I just remember he has like a watermelon that he has sex with or something. I don't remember that, but it's, that sounds about right. But it like, wasn't very good. He, I can tell you that much. <laughs> his wife and runs off with the chauffeur who took them back from the wedding. It's one of the traumas that led to him having you know disassociation okay, okay. with his. Uh, it is a. African American little person in the in the movie because mm-hmm. uh, they're going for like I, I don't know they're just trying to find like someone who's as like visually distinctive as possible. Yeah. How, do you remember how they go about describing that in the book? I don't. It was it was okay. a long time yeah, ago. Like, <laughs> I mostly just remember it just for like sheer like uh, of all the books to have a novelization. Yes. Of. No. That's I'm <laughs> so I I'm we're filled with a weird joy knowing that that exists and that you experience that. Yeah. I, that makes me oddly happy. There's I, actually I actually enjoyed the the, the novelization of uh, Videodrome, the um, David Cronenberg movie with James Woods, uh, where he's like um, basically gets absorbed into this like uh, there's like this dark conspiracy surrounding like video and it gets very surreal and he like. There's a lot of body, like it's Cronenberg, so there's body horror, of course. Um, but I mean, the, the movie's pretty good, but the book like gets into this like um, I don't know. This, this it's very well written. Like I, it kind of stuck with me more than than the movie did. Uh, it draws like these like samurai allegory. It's kind of interesting. Okay. <laughs> so I mean, novelizations can be good. I think uh, uh, maybe I've just had a bad experience with them. I mean, I've not had much experience with them, so I may be talking out out of pure ignorance here. But like, well, I think sometimes because sometimes the writer is like getting the screenplay before they've ever seen the movie. Okay, and they're adapting it, that. It like might the, be, uh, yeah. <laughs> it might be that my choice of ones because I, out of pure curiosity, read sections of Hook the novelization because mm. I at the time I was young and this was before Lost in Adaptation. I was just like. Oh, was it based on a book? I'll read this. And I, I slowly realized that this was not, it was the other way around. This was a novelization. And I, I threw it mm-hmm. away in contempt because it was like, you know, those ones where they basically, they stick to, it looked like it was sticking just to the script with the occasional extra sentence thrown in. Like mm-hmm. uh, when he's like, the, the cook has my children, please. And the Lost Boys are just like, wait, you said the P word. I was like, oh. <laughs> the other fucking one I read is I was bored in uh, a British bookstore and I, I my eye fell upon the novelization of Iron Man 2. Hmm. And I will say no one needs to hear what this author thinks Tony Stark's internal monologue is like. Oh, I see. So it might have just been my exposure to that that has led me to all avoid all novelizations from here on. Uh, Sometimes the writer takes some extra liberties, like the the, uh, the novelization of uh, another Cronenberg movie, um, Existence. Uh, the like that virtual reality movie. It, it it's a it's a really good movie. You should you should see it at some point. But the novelization is like it gets just like unnecessarily sexual. Like it makes scenes sexual that weren't sexual in the movie, and just like really plays up the whole like sexual aspect of everything. Um, I, I never finished that, but uh, it was kind of an interesting interpretation of things. I've heard the novelization of Back to the Future is totally off the rails. There's like. It's like not at all the story of the movie. There's like a nuclear war or something. It's what? like it gets insane from what I gather. Yeah, <laughs> wow, that's wild. Yeah, because they're, they're your two. That 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 was my fear is that your two major options is author goes off on his own bizarre tangent and you end up with like whatever fan fiction they've decided to written, or mm-hmm. you're just seeing someone writing down what they saw in the movie. Exactly, uh, which yeah. is why I've always been leery of them. And again, so I. I should probably try them before I keep judging them, but 
That's that's crazy. Uh, yeah. Huh. But yeah, it's. I think it's like once I've seen the film, I have my own sort of general idea of how this person's thought process works. Sure. And when you, it's if you, if you see it in the book first, it's it's like okay, yeah, this is how this person thinks. You see it in the movie, even if he's not necessarily acting the same way, you think well, they had to convert it because you can't hear his thoughts. So right. the other way round, I find it just oddly more annoying because it's like I don't necessarily think I never like. I, I don't think he was thinking about that at the time. I don't think that, that that can't have been his motivation, you know? Yeah. So, I don't know. It just it just doesn't I don't think novelizations need to be a thing in my life, so I've not really done much with them. So, I'm Sure. I'm I, haven't glad, re- I haven't read one in a very long time. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm glad you talked me into making an exception in this case because again, it didn't really turn out to be one, also turned out to be a damn good fucking book. Yeah. So, Again, so guys, this is not me saying, like, if you like novelizations, as they're, ooh, stop that. It's just me saying, like, it's not really for me, I think. Uh, sure. But yeah. So, uh, closing out, uh, yeah, Never- Neverwhere. Uh, good early example of Neil Gaiman's work. Try it, definitely try it out if you, uh, you know, would like, would like to, you know, if you're a Neil Gaiman fan and haven't heard of it, or just in general like dark urban fantasy. And check out, it, the TV show's available on Amazon, I think. You can buy it for, like, 12 pence. Uh, if you'd like to try that out. And yeah. And so thank you very much for joining me, Jamie. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was yeah. great. Uh, definitely check out uh, Jamie's sort of Let's Plays and, you know, reviews and, and social commentaries on YouTube. It's uh, Rantasmo or Needs More Gay is the name of the of the show. So mm-hmm. I believe Googling or, you know, checking out either of those in, in the YouTube search bar will lead you to him. Uh, I will also put links to his work in the show notes below. And, uh, yeah, if you are listening to this in audio form, you can see this and every other podcast I do with visuals, so our beautiful faces, uh, by signing up to any level on my Patreon, anything from, like, $2 and above. You will get unlimited access to all of these podcasts, not only early, but with stunning visuals in Technicolor. And, yeah, uh, if you are of the $10 level and above, stay tuned, because we'll be entering the VIP room. And yeah, everyone else, uh, thanks very much for joining us and we'll uh, see you next time.